chapter 11, starting in verse 23. If you're using our Red Bible, you can find this passage on page 958. And let me just take this time, too, to introduce myself. If you're new to Hope, we welcome you. Uh, my name is Joe. I'm a teaching elder at Hope, and, uh, and we are glad that you're here. We are a church that exists to extend the welcome of Jesus to everybody who walks through these doors. Um, we are not perfect at doing that, but we're glad that Jesus is here doing that. And, and we're just asking him uh, to make this his house. We're glad that you're here. As we've been, uh, if you are joining us, we've been walking through 1 Corinthians as a church, passage by passage. And about three weeks ago, we hit the most detailed and direct teaching that we have in the Bible on this thing that we do every week called the Lord's Supper. And because we do this every single week, we decided to linger on this passage a little bit longer instead of kind of rushing through it. We decided to linger on it and extract from it all that we could. And so over the weeks, we've learned a lot, I think, about the Lord's Supper. And it's been challenging to me. It's been encouraging to me. My prayer is that it's been the same for you. We've learned that the Supper is fundamentally two things. It's a proclamation and it's participation. It's proclamation and it's participation. And so when we take this supper, when we eat and drink at this table, we are proclaiming, we're proclaiming the cross of Jesus. We're proclaiming our trust in the cross of Jesus. And we're proclaiming our hope in Jesus's return. By doing this, we are saying something. We are proclaiming something. And so it's a proclamation. We've also learned it's a participation. When we take of this supper, when we eat and we drink, we have participation or communion with Jesus and with his people. So we know, for instance, that Jesus says, I love you with verbal words. That's what the preaching of the word is. Every single Sunday at our church, it's Jesus saying, I love you with his words. But like any decent husband in any decent marriage, Jesus says, I love you with more than verbal words. And that's the supper. It's a hug. It's an embrace. It's a physical, I love you. And he's here to say it every single Sunday in that way. So we have also seen that the Lord's Supper has two dimensions, the vertical and the horizontal. In the very first week that we dove in, we explored the horizontal element. The past two weeks, we've been looking at the vertical element of the supper, how the supper enriches and points to our vertical relationship to Jesus. This morning, we're going to finish our time in this passage by reading through the end of chapter 11. And we're going to see Paul point us back to the horizontal. How the supper both points to our relationships here in this church and enriches those relationships here in this church. And so let's start again in verse 23. But this time read all the way through to the end of the chapter. I'll read. You can follow along. This is God's word. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning or recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Or that could be translated, make room for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock, you are our redeemer, and you promise by your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Lord, would you do that now? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and would you soften our hearts so that we would worship you and that we would see you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so one of my favorite things as a kid was visiting Grandma Donna's house. Because everything in her house was different than the way that my house was growing up. She owned things that we didn't own, for instance. Uh, she had this incredible bell collection in this glass case. Who has a bell collection? Grandma Donna had a bell collection. And we would go and she would let us take them out and look at them and sort of pick our favorites. She didn't have regular cups. My grandpa worked for Snap-on Tools. And so she had big, huge plastic mugs sponsored by Snap-on. And we drank milk from those things. I loved it. She had this old TV. She was like an early adopter with the television, right? And she would let us stay up and watch that thing. It was another world. We would lay on her shag carpet and watch late night TV. So she not only owned things that we didn't own, but she also did things very differently than what I grew up with. So at my house, we would eat every meal together at the dining room table. But at my grandma's house, she had this set of folding TV trays. You know what I'm talking about? It's like faux wood, kind of gilded gold. It was amazing. They all sort of hung together, and then she would sort of, for dinner, we would pick our favorite seat in the living room, face the TV, and then unfold the, t- the, t- the tray in front of us. And we would have our own personal dinner experience. 
It was awesome. <laughs> Let me just say, I loved it. I loved it. It was so different than what I grew up with. It was such a change from sitting around my table, like facing my family members. Who wants to do that? I was thinking about these personal dinner trays the other day because I think it's the perfect picture of how most of us approach this table. As a personal dining experience. It's like Jesus unfolds a TV tray dinner for you. And yeah, there's other people around, but they're not the point, right? It's just you and Jesus. It's just you and Jesus. It's just you and Jesus. And I definitely view the Lord's Supper this way. It's, it's my default to view the Lord's Supper this way. I mean, after all, I grew up in a culture that made up the personal TV tray dinner, <laughs> What do you expect? Even when I started following Jesus, I would close my eyes during the supper and I would sort of block everybody out and just spend time with Jesus. It was about me and Jesus, not me and you and Jesus. It was about me and Jesus. And now, of course, it didn't help uh, that the Lord's Supper and most of the churches I attended came in these little lunchables, right? That were very personal-sized. And that alone communicated something about the supper to me. It's a personal dining experience. Now, I don't think it would surprise you uh, if I told you that the Bible gives us another model for the Lord's Supper. Another picture. Paul tells us in the passage that we just heard that the Lord's Supper is not an individual meal. It's a family meal. Sure, God meets us individually and personally at this family meal. But if we stop there, we are missing the full picture of what's going on. It's never to the exclusion of others. It's a family meal. Paul teaches us this in the passage this morning. If you look down at the text in verse 33, he addresses the church as a collection of brothers and sisters. And then he tells them to wait or make room for each other at the dinner table. It's like mom and dad kind of yelling in the backyard, y'all, it's time to eat. And we're waiting for you to get here because we're all sitting down at the same table. It's dinner time. Brothers and sisters, it's dinner time. That's what Paul is doing in this text. And then in verse 29, he tells the church to discern or recognize the body. Paul is referring to the body of Christ, which is the church. He is saying, when you eat, look around you, open your eyes, see your family. I want you to call to mind the dining room tables at the Hogwarts Great Hall. Just picture those massive 
tables that go on and on and on and on and on. And every student has a place at the table. And they wait for Dumbledore's word. And then, boom, they all eat together. Now, I want you to keep that image in your mind and now call to mind my grandma's blessed TV trays. One of these things is not like the other. And the scriptures, and Paul is pointing us towards the big, massive dining room table. He's telling us the Lord's Supper is a family meal. And I think this is crucial to get into our heads and into our hearts in order to make sense of the passage that we just heard read aloud. Because in this passage, Paul is going to talk about how our family meal includes not only delights, but also disciplines. That only makes sense in a family context. This table, this Lord's table, it's His dinner table is a table of discipline and delight. Now, how can both of those be true? We're going to explore that for the rest of our time. So let's first look at discipline, how this is a table that disciplines us. Now, discipline is a a misunderstood word these days, and so let's unpack the word. Godly discipline has love for its motivation and growth for its destination. Any school teachers out there? Can I get a hand? Any school teachers? You discipline your students every single day with homework, with deadlines, with grades, with consequences. Why? So they learn and so they grow and they go on to the next grade. Same with God. When, when the Lord disciplines his children, and I want you to notice this, when the Lord disciplines his children, it's never punitive. It's always transformative. All of our sins have been punished on the cross. Discipline is not punitive. It is transformative. And this is important to get straight because Paul says in verse 32, if you look down, that God is disciplining some folks in the Corinthian church for the way they were using the Lord's Supper to elevate their status up and over the poor. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. He says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now, by the way, two quick points about that. Number one, read the whole council of Scripture and see that sickness and death come from all kinds of reasons and to all kinds of people. We don't draw lines automatically from sickness to sin. We are not to do that. And number two, the Apostle Paul has a unique authority to draw that line in this situation. A unique authority to do that. And so in verse 32, Paul makes it clear that this is because of God's commitment to his church, to his people. Look at the verse, so they don't get condemned. So discipline isn't another word for for divine wrath. It's, It's another word for divine commitment. 
commitment to our growth and maturity in, yes, eternal security and safety. God disciplines to prevent our future and final judgment. This is rooted in love. So Proverbs 3.12 tells us, The Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. And we think about this, it makes sense. A lack of discipline is actually a sign, I think we all recognize, that, 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 this, that the caretakers don't care about that person's growth. The worst thing that can happen to us is if our caretakers or school teachers give up on us. Lack of loving discipline is apathy. And God is not apathetic towards his own. Now, why is God disciplining the Corinthian church? For two major reasons. Let's, let's take a look. First is for dividing the Lord's table. Remember, the Corinthians were celebrating the Lord's Supper. If you were with us week one, we really dove into this. With two tables when there's supposed to be one. One for the wealthy and well-connected. And one for the poor and unconnected. And so most homes in the ancient Corinth, if you think about this, had two rooms. The dining room, which would host about 10 to 20 folks. And then what they called the atrium, which was the porch. And the porch would host many, many more, about 40 to 50, sometimes more. And so what was happening is the Corinthian custom, when you had a dinner party, was to bring the VIPs into the dining room and give them the best seat and the best food. And then everybody else who wasn't a VIP would have food. And so you would be hospitable, but they'd be eating in the atrium. Often, oftentimes a different set of food and oftentimes at different times. And this makes sense of when Paul's saying, some of you are getting drunk at the table and others are getting hungry. And I know some of us, we're like, how on earth is that possible? How on earth are some going drunk and some going hungry? The, the answer is they, they, they had the supper celebration in the midst of a big meal. And they would have this arrangement so that those who were in the dining room got the best food, got the most food. And then there were the poor in the atrium who were getting little to no food, leftovers. And they were celebrating the Lord's Supper that way. And Paul is like, that's not the Lord's Supper. This isn't your supper. This isn't the Corinthian supper. You don't eat like the Corinthians. This is Jesus' dinner party, not yours. You do not have two tables. You have one table. You've probably seen Downton Abbey. Anybody? Nobody? Nobody's seen Downton Abbey? Really? That surprises me a lot. I thought we were a Downton Abbey type of church. For um, Well, if you don't know, uh, the creator, Julian Fellows, admits that he ripped off this show from a 1971 British series called Upstairs, Downstairs. And both shows explore the dynamic between the aristocracy and the working class. The aristocracy ate upstairs. And then they showed you what went on downstairs, upstairs, downstairs. They would eat downstairs, the working class. And this was a, a show that sort of uh, explored that dynamic, explored that tension. Well, that's exactly how the Corinthian culture worked. It was an upstairs, downstairs culture. 
And instead of inviting the downstairs up to eat, or probably more Jesus-like, the upstairs coming downstairs to eat, according to how the downstairs folks ate, they just kept them downstairs. In verse 27, if you take a look, Paul calls this unworthy. Unworthy means not fitting. The supper proclaims our unity in Christ. And so it's not fitting to eat this supper in a way that proclaims that we are divided by anything. Social class, financial portfolio, race. And this is why in verse 28, they must examine themselves, their motives for eating. It's very possible that the, like, first of all, this letter is being written to those with, with uh, cultural cachet in Corinth. And it's very possible that these folks, whether they knew it or not, were actually celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way to actually bolster their name. You wouldn't believe who's in the dining room with me. This powerful person. They're doing things the way the Corinthians did things. They didn't think that the Lord's Supper was on a different order. And so examine yourselves, Paul says. Why? So that in verse 29, they may discern or recognize the body, which is the church, rich and poor, well-connected and not well-connected, those with cultural power and those without cultural power, all whom Jesus has saved, everyone who's covered by the blood of Jesus. Recognize, discern the body. And he's saying, do it. And make sure that you're not shoving some of Jesus' people downstairs. And so they were being disciplined. They were also being disciplined, I think, not just for this division, but also for downplaying the division. I think we read this and we see that we think, okay, Paul is kind of being harsh here. And we don't really understand why. Well, first of all, it might be because today we are the wealthy, well-connected Corinthians. And so it kind of rubs us a little bit. If this passage feels harsh, it's because Paul is sounding an alarm. He's giving us a smelling salt. And because the Corinthians didn't really see this as a big deal. They were downplaying it. Paul says this is a big deal. When the Lord's Supper becomes like a middle school lunchroom, this is a big deal. In verse 27, he says, they are sinning against the body and blood of Jesus himself. They are sinning against Jesus when they do this. Because Jesus so identifies with his people that sinning against them is sinning against him. I mean, remember, this is Paul who's writing this, who used to be Saul. And Saul was persecuting the church. Jesus knocked him off his horse and he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with his people so deeply that when you, Jesus says, when you give somebody, a poor person, a cup of water because they're thirsty, Jesus says, you are giving that cup of water to me. I so identify with those who have no cultural power. I so identify with the poor. I so identify with those who are marginalized 
Jesus says, when you sin against them, you sin against me. When you bless them, you bless me. You cannot downplay this. This is a huge deal. It's eating and drinking judgment on yourself, Paul says. And I think this helps me as I was thinking through this text, praying about this text. It helps me understand and accept the harsh discipline that occurred in Corinth. We think, how harsh? But as I said, that's probably because we are the wealthy and well-connected Corinthians of our day. But put yourself in the shoes of the second-class Corinthians who were being treated as second-class Christians in this church context. I think this shows us how seriously God contends for those without material wealth and those without social wealth. I mean, this is a window into God's heart, isn't it? It's a window into his heart for the marginalized. There is no upstairs, downstairs in God's house. And he will discipline his church when those upstairs, downstairs dynamics take root. And there's never two tables when there ought to be one. If you dig even a little bit into church history, you will discover that this upstairs-downstairs problem did not get solved, unfortunately, in the Corinthian church. Like a virus, it just keeps on spreading and growing. There are churches today, PCA churches, that have balconies that were reserved for the slaves of those who own the slaves down beneath which if we were in one of those buildings would be a weekly reminder of what Paul is preaching about. And it's tempting for us in Ohio in 2020 to downplay this and say that's not our problem. We weren't alive at the time in the antebellum South. In any ways, we live in the North. But we shouldn't brush this aside because as Pete Scazzaro puts it, Jesus may be in our hearts, but our family history is in our bones. And so we own it. We repent of it. We educate ourselves. We listen. We read. We pay attention to the ways that those who do not have social wealth are being marginalized by Christians who do have social wealth and material wealth. And we ask, how is that legacy being advanced today? We don't assume it's not. And how do we learn? We listen. We listen to those who are experiencing it today with humility. What we never do is downplay how the church has historically pushed Jesus' people downstairs. Or the ways we still do it today. And then we need to, as a church, hope, ask ourselves if we have an upstairs-downstairs dynamic in our church 
right now. Our church core is sort of an educated, wealthy, well-connected 30 to 40-something with kids. Are we pushing others that don't fit that very narrow demographic downstairs? I want you to wrestle with that. I'm committing to wrestling with that. That's an amen, I hope. Maybe we're not barring them from the supper, but are we doing things in less overt ways? Well, this passage shows us the heart of Jesus on the matter. He wants all of his people at the table. Okay, so it's a, it's a table of discipline, like all family tables are. But we can't miss that it's also a table of delight. And this helps me actually understand why it's a table of discipline. And so let me just talk about this to close out. The family table, the Lord's table, as we saw last week, is a table of delight. Family meals are a place of deep delight. And what we can't do is we can't see these warnings about discipline and then become imbalanced in our approach to the table. It becomes tempting, actually, because there isn't that much teaching on the Lord's Supper to see this teaching and sort of have it be the overriding thing, and it can sour the table. So that there are some traditions that as the Lord's Supper comes and the, and the pastor fences the table, like zero people come up because they fear the Lord. Amen. Right. They're like the Lord is alive and he's here and I'm reading this and I just I just shouldn't come up. But that is an imbalanced view of the supper. The supper is meant for those who know their need, who know their sin, are hungry And it's meant to be a table of delight and celebration for a lot of reasons. We delight in the gift of family. Remember, we have brothers and sisters now in Christ. This is our first family now. Jesus, by grace, invites us into his family. He he takes away our sin and he says, now I am your older brother. And you have brothers and sisters, and that is such good news. And we come here to celebrate that reality. And every time we get up and we come and we take of the bread and we take of the wine, we are celebrating our first family. It's also a time to delight in the gifts of Jesus. So the Lord's Supper is one huge affirmation of the physical pleasures that God gives us in life. The Lord's Supper says matter matters. Remember, Jesus is like, I'm going to say I love you with bread and with wine. That is one massive amen to the world he created, the physical world that he created. And so we eat and we drink as a way to delight in God's gifts. We also delight ultimately in the gift that is Jesus. He says, do this in remembrance of me. I took care of your sin." I took care of your shame so that you can celebrate. And so we delight in Jesus for his grace. Uh, When Josie and I, my wife, got married, uh, we wanted to spend the most resources on the reception. The wedding feast. We wanted good wine, we wanted good food, and we wanted good music. 
And we paid very close attention to the invitation list. We paid for each of them to have that good wine and that good food and that good music. Now imagine for a moment how I would feel, how Josie would feel, if the postman did not deliver the invitation to some folks on the list. The postman was walking with the invitation to a house and said, I don't know, I don't think they should be at that wedding reception. I don't think the hacks want somebody who's renting an apartment at their wedding or who doesn't cut their yard at their wedding or whatever. The postman is making the judgment. They aren't invited. Or imagine if there was some kind of like self-appointed bouncer standing outside of our wedding reception and as people were coming in to the party that we invited them to, And they sort of were like, no, walk away. There's a little party in the bathroom over there for you. Okay? What would happen? I would be mad. I would be upset. It would grieve me. And I think that helps me understand the sort of ferocity of God in this passage. (laughs) He's like, how dare you reject people who I invited to this table? This is a celebration that I paid for with my own body and blood. And you're going to be a self-appointed bouncer? No. And that calls for a severe mercy from God, which we see in this text. His discipline is fueled by delight. His delight in his people. His delight in this table. He loves eating with the poor and the socially marginalized. And so how dare we turn his party into a cocktail party for cool kids, which is what we're so tempted to do. This is Jesus' table. Amen? If he invites people to the table, we have no business putting them downstairs. And we have every business delighting in Jesus, and in his people. That's what we do when we recognize and discern the body. We delight in the diversity of Jesus' people. We love it, and we recognize it. See, the supper is Jesus' parting gift to the church. He gives us a meal to celebrate every single time we gather. And by the Holy Spirit, guess what? He shows up and he serves this meal every single week. And you would think, you know, apart from that promise, we would think this would be a sad meal because as we all know, when the holidays come around and we sit down, we recognize those who are not there the most, correct? People who have passed away. And so we would think this would be a very sad meal that Jesus was giving the church because all it would do is remind us of Jesus' absence. But Jesus sort of turns that on its head and says, you know what, no, I'm actually going to be there. So this is not a sad meal. This is a celebration. And he's inviting all of his people to it. All of them. 
all who have with empty hands of faith come to Jesus and trusted in him. And we do not turn any of those people away. Remember, this is a family meal. And so let's eat like that. Amen? We can allow this passage to do its work this morning as we have a chance to celebrate this supper. Examine your motives for coming to the table right now. Paul would have you do that. He would also say, don't close your eyes, open your eyes and look at the body. The entire body of Christ. And come celebrating the unity that we have at the foot of his cross. Remember, this is a family meal. And so come as brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, if you don't have Jesus as your older brother and the church as your first family, then I think this passage gives us enough cause and reason to not partake. This isn't just some empty ritual. But if Jesus is your older brother and the church is your first family, this supper is for you. There are other ways, if you're not partaking, that you can participate, though. You can walk forward with us. Just tell us you're not taking the bread and wine, and we'll pray for whatever it is that you would like prayer for. You can stay where you're seated, and nobody will judge you. You can spend time reflecting on, on your life and on where God might be calling you to. We have prayers that could maybe help you as you reflect. If this spurs any questions, I would encourage you to come to me or anybody else in our church and ask those questions. No questions are off limits at our church. And we recognize them and we honor them. But if you know your sin and you know your need and your eyes are open to the body of Christ, this table is for you. Lord the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we come to your table celebrating all that you've done to make room. This is your table. This is your dinner party. And you have invited all of your people to it, Lord. We repent of every way that we make that hard and that we blur that one table. And we come with our eyes open, hugging each other, asking forgiveness for, for each other, and to each other as one body of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.